Would you stand and let's sing together? In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets. To a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three and one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings, to reveal the kingdom.
Amen, and welcome to worship at Fellowship Church. As we just sang, Christ is the king of the universe, the king of the church, and longs to be the king of our hearts. This morning, as we flip the calendar on the church year, and as we anticipate Advent starting up next week, we recognize the supremacy of Christ's reign over everything. And so hear this invitation from God in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Let us continue worshiping the King. Pastor Nate mentioned, we are also concluding our fall worship series that we've called Between the Lines. Since September, we've journeyed together through the oldest books in our Bible, starting with the first book of Genesis and concluding this morning um, with the prophet Isaiah as Pastor Ross preaches. In this worship series, we've sought to engage the stories in the text with the stories in our world and the stories in our own lives. By reading between the lines, we've explored the seeming gaps between the lines from a place of acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Colossians 1 says that in him, Christ, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. And in him, all things hold together. 
because it was through Christ that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Theologian Abraham Kuyper says it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. With these things in mind, I invite you into a prayer that includes words on the screen that we will speak together from Philippians chapter two. Uh, you may want to pray with your eyes open so that you see those coming. It'll be two slides that we say together. And then we'll end our prayer with a video, um, which we, during that video, we invite you to engage it with a prayerful imagination about how these truths might be realized in our day. Let's pray together. Eternal God, you set Jesus Christ to rule over all things and made us servants in your kingdom. We praise you for your vision of a community of wholeness, a realm of peace in which all who hunger and thirst are nourished, in which the stranger is welcomed, the hurting are healed, and the captive is set free. And we say together, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Eternal God, shape us as we read between the lines of the stories we find in your word, the stories we encounter in our world, and the stories we are living in our daily lives. Open our minds and our hearts to the reality that Christ is king over all, weaving these stories together in perfect unity. And we say together, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eternal God, allow us to see between the lines of separation that create distance between ourselves and others. May we recognize those divisions as the illusion that they are. May we see the holy image of God in those we treat as our adversaries. Open our eyes and hearts to the reality that Christ is king over all, uniting us and holding all things together in himself. And we say together, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Eternal God, help us to hear between the lines of what is said or done and what is meant, listening for the hurts and longings underneath as we interact with our family, our loved ones, and those we consider our enemies. Open our ears and our hearts to the reality that Christ is king over all, reconciling us to yourself and each other in the wholeness of love, joy, and peace. And we say together, at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We pray these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
Ashwood rocks cry out to worship Whose glory taught the stars to shine Perhaps creation longs to have the words to see But this joy is
and sisters in Christ, it is because of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have peace with God and peace with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. Therefore, let us extend the sign of peace to one another as you are able and as you are comfortable. Good morning, fellowship. Thank you. There you are. <laughs> uh, my name is Tiara. If I've not yet met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, if you are new with us, if this is your first Sunday, or maybe you've been here for a few Sundays and you're ready to take that next step to get to know us a little bit better, there are these things called connection cards. They're in the back on those little tiny tables with the bowls on them. Um, you can complete one of those cards. You can bring it to me or one of the other pastors. You can take it over to the Welcome Center, and there's some great folks there, some really friendly folks there who would love to meet you and greet you by name and help you to take that step in getting to know us as a community. Um, I have a couple of things for us this morning. Uh, first, uh, the first actually emerges right out of the scriptures, uh, beginning in Matthew chapter two. Uh, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so begins the story of the three wise men. How many of you have heard the story before, even a reference to the wise men, the three wise men? Yeah, pretty familiar story, right? Uh, in fact, so familiar that we've sometimes forgotten how rich the story is, how many layers there are to the story. Uh, and so over the course of Advent, which begins, kicks off this coming Sunday, November 27th, we will be exploring uh, the story of the wise men from the East. Um, and throughout the Advent season, we invite you to journey with us uh, to slough off the familiarity of the story and maybe step into the wonder and the awe um, of the wandering wise men, the first seekers of Christ from afar, who somehow perceive God's great invitation to make the trek to Bethlehem to look for the Christ child. So we'll follow their sense of wonder all the way to the manger where they and we get to behold the Christ child. So we want to set out on a trek with the wandering wise men and we need some gear for the journey. We need some stuff for our pack. And it just so happens that in the atrium, we have a set of kits. They're called the wandering wise men kits. Uh, and in these kits, there's a few things that can help you follow along with us for the next four weeks. Things like um, a children's storybook based on Matthew 2 or a devotional, a daily devotional for adults. Uh, there's a bookmark. I don't know what the bookmark does, but Ross said I should have the bookmark. So here's the bookmark. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, you've heard of Elf on a Shelf. How many of you have played Elf on a Shelf before? 
couple of you. So consider this like uh, wise men on a beam or something. Uh, you can hide these around your house uh, like elf on a shelf. There's three of them. I will return this one to, to the back. Uh, so these kits go for a retail price of $75, but you, thanks to the generosity of some folks in our community, you can get the kit for $25. Yeah, isn't that a steal? That's a huge deal. So uh, in, <laughs> I highly encourage you to join us on this journey. Uh, we are really excited to, um, to really take a look at Matthew 2 and God's great invitation to humanity, not just those who are close, um, not just those who are near, but specifically and especially to those who are far off. And so over Advent, we want to contemplate this invitation afresh, not only for our own lives, but also for the lives of the people around us who God is sending us to be almost like postal carriers of his invitation to them, uh, conduits of God's invitation. So hope you'll do this journey with us. Uh, secondly, our Thanksgiving Eve service is coming up this Wednesday, Thanksgiving Eve, 6.30 p.m. here in the atrium. Our community meal that night will be pizza, uh, 6.30 p.m. in the sanctuary for the service, 5.45 p.m. in the atrium for pizza. Um, we'd love to see you there. And then last night, a little bit of a celebration, we hosted our fall or winter or blizzard-themed trivia night uh, as a fundraiser for uh, both Winter Retreat and Rocky Mountain High Summer Trip. Uh, the youths were able to raise um, something like $3,700. Incredible, right? Yeah, seriously. Uh, we had 82 players between 15 teams, and, um, and the winning team was named the Marauders. Marauders? Are there any folks here from that team? Okay, they're sleeping in. They're sleeping in. Oh, yay. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, so lastly, um, we are in the middle of a, or kind of coming to the end of our No Scrooge November. Uh, you've heard of No Shave November. I've heard of it. I've never played. Uh, <laughs> don't have a beer. <laughs> uh, but No Scrooge November was our way of partnering directly and inviting you into partnership directly with some of our mission partners. Uh, mission partners like uh, Bethany Christian Services, um, where you could give a gift card donation to foster care families, or Holland Rescue Mission, where you could package care boxes for people, um, wiping out lunch balance debt and our lunch balance jubilee, and then also participating in the Hope Christmas Store. So still a couple days left for that. There's some information out in the atrium, and you can also see Reverend for more details about that. And with that, um, <laughs> did you make a face? <laughs> uh, and with that, at this time, children ages three through fifth grade, you are welcome to follow Miss Betsy to kids programming and everyone over fifth grade, you can continue in worship with us right here. Thank you.
you, Bell Choir, for leading us. Friends, it was four years and two days ago, November 18, 2018, I stepped into this pulpit for the very first time and into this sanctuary for the very first time. I preached a sermon. No, that's not, that's not the point. That's... I, no, no. No. <laughs> I preached a sermon. You went out there to vote. I was candidating. It was like our first date. We were so young and hopeful. Now you're just blind, I think. I don't know. But get this. At that time, this same time four years ago, the text assigned to preach was the exact same one that is today, Isaiah chapters 2, 36, and 37. So today I'm going to preach 2, and last time I preached 36 and 37. But I did wonder this week, if I preached the exact same sermon, would you even notice? (laughs) I won't do that, I promise. For better or for worse, this is all new except for the one thing. Four years ago at that time, very nervous about this moment, I gave myself some advice. I said, dear self, preach what you need most to hear. And I'm doing that again today, and I want to pray a prayer to that effect, the same prayer from four years ago. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what I need most to hear today is a fresh word from you, not my words but your word, because wonder of wonders, it was by your word that this world was made. And even more wonderful still, it is by your word made flesh that this world is being made new, even now. So as we gather ourselves in your presence, O God, and as we open your word in order to submit ourselves to it, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Hear these words from the book that we love, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest Of all the mountains, it shall rise above all the hills. All the nations shall stream to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall arbitrate for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few big ideas I want to put on your radar because I can't move past them at first, three of them. First thing I hope you notice in hearing the text, perhaps the first time today, is that there is unity but not uniformity in that vision of Isaiah. It is a gathering of folks, but the folks are not ones who all look and think and act exactly the same. It is a fellowship of difference, if you will, and they agree perhaps only on one thing. 
God and God's mountain above all other mountains. The text speaks quite repeatedly about all the nations and many peoples. And these two are coming together in the Hebrew language. This is quite literally an us and them type of gathering. The nations, the goyim, is the foreigners, the people that are not us, those other people. And the people, the many peoples, they are the amim. They are our tribe, our kin, the my people, people. And yet it is these groups coming together that are going up to God's mountain and they are going there in order to learn, presumably because they do not already know. That's the first thing. Second thing I hope you notice is that this vision is religious, not irreligious. It is a freely chosen, upward flowing stream of people who are going to learn from God. It's the opposite, if you will, of John Lennon's famous song from some years back where he imagines a peaceful gathering as well. As well. Imagine all the people, he says. But in that song, the vision is one of no heaven above, no hell below, no country to kill or die for, and no religion to. Isaiah's vision is not that. Isaiah sees religion uncoerced, people freely choosing to go and let God lead above all else. Third, I hope you notice that the gathering is actively peaceful, that it is quite literally a disarming of weapons and an unlearning of war. The imagery is of beating swords into plowshares. It's been made into a statue, and I love that it stands there in New York City, and there is just high contrast of that and also the graffiti behind it, a, a reminder to us of the tension that's literally in the text as well. A hopeful dream in a messy world. Today, we might actually say it a little differently. We might picture tanks being used as tractors, or we might picture missiles being used as boat anchors or something like that. That's the way that Isaiah is speaking in this context. Now, I'd love to give extra attention today to the unity in the text or the religiosity in the text. But we only have so much time and there's always another Sunday that we can be together. The word that I need most to hear today, and perhaps you too, is a word of peace in a world obsessed with war. So let's consider war and peace and let's consider it on three fronts. The individual interpersonal front between groups and among the nations. First of all, and far and away, the most common place in which we have opportunity to choose between the sword and the plowshare is interpersonally. There's a brand new book that just came out literally last week, and it is called Escaping Enemy Mode. It's written, rather ironically, by a Christian pacifist trained in psychology and neuroscience, pairing up with a retired army general. And they together are hoping to help people escape enemy mode and to explore together how our brains unite or divide us. According to their definition, a brain in enemy mode sees other people's motives as bad, recruits others to resist or attack the enemy, wants the other side to lose, and turns people into animated objects. In the book, it puts forth three ways that we kind of slip, sometimes unnoticed, into enemy mode. The simple way, 
the stupid way, which my son doesn't like that word. He says, dad said the S word, but he was in the first service. So we're in the clear right now. Simple, stupid, and smart or intelligent way. In simple enemy mode, we have sleepy brains. We're preoccupied. We're not thinking relationally. I call this task mode otherwise. In simple enemy mode, you're not seeing other people as people. They are things that are either useful or in the way. So picture yourself driving. You're not thinking about the human beings necessarily in the cars. They're either in your way, beep, beep, or they're nicely letting you in. Thank you, right? It's just simple, non-relational mode. Or if you go to the restaurant and the waiter or waitress comes and takes your order for drinks, my dad used to always quiz us as kids. After they walked away, he'd say, what was their name? It was his way of helping us to actually see a person rather than just a task doer in that particular moment. Or maybe you're at home putting together some Ikea furniture, <laughs> wrestling with those instructions that have no words and only pictures, and you are in enemy mode with anyone who is disrupting the thing that you are failing at, hypothetically. <laughs> when a loved one is ready to talk, but you're too busy to listen, you're probably in simple enemy mode. If you're obsessed with not wasting time, if you are not making eye contact at all, you're probably in simple enemy mode. Next up is stupid enemy mode. It's when we have a hyper-reactive brain reacting with primal instincts. That's a photo of uh, Pastor Nate this past Thursday when we ran out of coffee. I call it survival mode. In this mode, shields are up and swords are drawn. We've been triggered somehow. Our ego offended or something we love or fear is right in front of us and it's scary. When we're in this mode, some of our best allies, even our friends and family and colleagues can be treated as foes because we're scared. Examples of this would be a toddler with a terrible twos. Or Christians at a consistory meeting talking about masks during a pandemic. <laughs> or Americans at election time. Stupid enemy mode thinks I'm under attack. Fight or flight. Forget thriving. Now is the time for surviving. You might be in stupid enemy mode if you later regret things that you said or did in the moment. Or if you cannot look at the person right in front of you and say, our relationship matters more than this problem or disagreement, right? You might be in, in stupid enemy mode. In intelligent enemy mode, the last of the three categories, we are cold and calculated like the world's supervillains almost. We are strategically against. I've nicknamed this scarcity mode because in intelligent enemy mode, we're basically thinking there's not enough of whatever to go around, the thing that I really want, and therefore you must lose so that I can win. We are nearly dead inside when we are doing this. We are actively resisting any kind of care or compassion for the other person or people group that's being treated as an enemy in the moment. Examples would include Black Friday shopping at Walmart, <laughs> an ugly divorce proceeding, most of the isms that we have in the world, ageism, sexism, racism, nationalism, whatever. You might be in intelligent enemy mode if you are using ethical words to justify unethical deeds. 
or if you're willing to leverage someone else's pain for your own gain, or if you are more interested in controlling the narrative than caring for people, you're probably in intelligent enemy mode. As I've thought about these various things, I've wondered this week if some of the most radical and profound teachings of Jesus for interpersonal relationships was his command to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Who does that? He did that. And he asked us to do the same. Enemy mode says, take up the sword. Isaiah, alongside Jesus, are saying, how about a plowshare instead? And in a vision that is far more joyful and communal, communal than enemy mode ever is, there is a word that the prophet Isaiah saw, and he said, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, rising above all the hills. All the nations shall stream to it, and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate between many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O people of God, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Beyond interpersonal enemy mode, of course, is the way that we do those very same things among our various groups, right? And this is the classic us versus them stuff. Dividing lines might be drawn geographically or ideologically or sometimes around something that's entirely wacky. But the point is that there is an in-group, which is my group, and there is an out-group, which is the not-my-group people, right? And if you don't like me, if you don't think like me, if you don't like my things, or if you don't live nearby me, you're likely in the out-group. Sigmund Freud, recognizing this constant feuding that we have, has a phrase, he called it the narcissism of minor differences, Others picked up similar ideas and now call it social identity theory. So in this, you'll see it's basically a mirror image of the two same sides of things, but there's the us and the them crowd. Over here is our blessed homeland, and over there is their barbarous wasteland. Over here, we have our heroic adventurers. Over here, there's their brutish invaders, and so on and so forth. You've perhaps heard the term arachnophobia, which is the fear of spiders. Xenophobia is the fear of the other, the fear of an enemy, if you will. And yet Jesus' teaching seems to be the opposite of that, offering some kind of xenophilia, the love of the neighbor, welcoming the stranger, loving enemies, and more. One of the easiest and safest ways to illustrate this way that we have in-groups and out-groups is, of course, sport rivalries. And there is no better week to talk about sport rivalry than six days counting to the great game between Michigan and Ohio State, right? There is, in fact, actually a new documentary that just came out highlighting not only this rivalry, but the ways that we as humans seek out and relish this kind of stuff and build our identities based on it. 
the, the uh, film, I'm actually recommending you go take a look at it. Next slide there is called Rivals, and it shows for us win, lose, repeat. That's what happens over and over and over again. And I think if you go and watch it, it's not only fun because of sports, but also if you think about it in regard to the rest of your in-groups and out-groups, it might actually be a formational exercise to engage it. They, they put a rubric to this rivalry stuff, and they say that what's really, really needed is some strong similarities put right alongside some deep differences and then some opportunities for constant conflict. And voila, you have a rivalry. But it's much more than sports, too. So here's the trailer. Take a look. Rivalries are natural. They form organically. Humans are fundamentally a social species. We need both a sense of belonging to a particular group, but then a sense of competition with an outgroup. Political ideology, religion, our work, they all become part of our identity. Scarlet and gray versus maize and blue. Good versus evil battle that's raged for over a century. This rivalry is way bigger than just one fan. You get a geographical rivalry, and then you get a generational rivalry. This is like the essence of Schadenfreude. It is the week that I can't wait for. They're in enemy territory today. We're better than you are. No, we're better than you are. It's based on God knows what. That's a rivalry. Ohio State versus Michigan college football's greatest game. Premiering this fall, a new docuseries, Rivals. One of the stories that's emerged from that particular rivalry is a time in which Ohio State was winning and winning so much they didn't need to go for two, which is what you do after you score rather than kicking a field goal. But they did, and the interviewers afterwards asked them, why did you go for two? And the answer was, because we couldn't go for three. Right. Sport rivalries might actually be the healthiest outlet that we have for this human need to be against. But the uncomfortable truth is that we play the social identity card, the in-group, out-group game all the time in lots of different places. We do it not only with schools and teams, but also with neighborhoods and nations, religions and races businesses and brands, politics and pandemics. There was a phrase in the video, Schadenfreude, a German term, I probably said it wrong, Schadenfreude. It literally means harm joy. It's delighting in the demise of someone else, cheering specifically someone else to lose or to hurt somehow. In sports, it might be a rivalry at its best, but in the rest of life, it's humanity at our worst. There is, however, a hopeful story that emerges from this stark rivalry between Michigan and Ohio State. In 1978, the Ohio State coach, Woody Hayes, got angry. He snapped into enemy mode out on the field, and he punched an opposing player in the face. The player was fine. <laughs> didn't hurt him at all. But 
he was in big trouble in that particular moment. It was a bit like what has happened recently with University of Michigan basketball, actually. But in this particular instance, Woody Hayes' wife reached out to the one person she knew could actually help him in this difficult situation, Bo Schembechler. And Bo dropped everything and went over to this arch enemy, the frenemy, and actually came alongside him in this hardest of times. It was no longer just a game. It was life. It makes me wonder if those guys, despite their rivalry and despite all the pressures that we have for in-groups and for out-groups, it makes me wonder if they had heard the words of the prophet Isaiah when he said, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of all the mountains, rising above all the other hills. All the nations shall stream to it, and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may learn to walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate between many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. O people of God, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The last arena in which Isaiah speaks of war and peace is among the nations. It's the place in which he speaks most explicitly and the place also where we perhaps have the least influence. But to be sure, Isaiah's vision is international and it is a prophetic word to a world that has almost never known peace. This graphic shows a record of known history, revealing that 92% of the time in the approximate 3,400 years past of recorded history, there have been wars happening somewhere, and that's only the recorded stuff, not counting the stuff that wasn't recorded. Clearly, our world has almost never known peace, and we are not naturally a people of peace. Next slide shows what's happened most recently, 2021 Global Peace Index, Red and orange are the hot spots, if you will. Yellow is medium. Green is good. The number I hope you notice also, though, is in the bottom corner over here is the overall change, 0.07%. We're stagnant. It's been that way for a long, long time, and it doesn't seem to be changing very much. We are ever fighting and ever learning the way of the sword and not the way of the plowshare. Is Isaiah's prophecy just a pretty poem? Is it unrealistic? Is it too utopian? Do we know better? Can we shrug it off and go back to life as usual, continuing the hurt cycle of war games on repeat? Prophecy is supposed to make us pause and think again, to think deeply, to think beyond maintaining the status quo. Remember the old definition of insanity from Albert Einstein, right? It is to do the same thing over and over and over again and to expect a different result each time. Now, please, I do hope you under, know, I, I understand that this is a complex subject and that war and peace is one of those issues that faithful Christians think differently about. In fact, I have entire pages of sermon scraps that I'm not going to preach today, but I'm trying try to survey all of the, the best practices, the best thinking 
from many Christians sorting out how we are to live Christianly in regard to war and peace. It's complicated. If you push too far to the one side, more towards pacifism, it begins, it feels very biblical and yet it begins to feel unpractical or possibly even hypocritical as American Christians. Push too far to the other side and it becomes much more practical towards something more like a just war and understanding of consequences and so forth, but it also becomes cringingly unchristlike. How are we to sort this out? I don't necessarily know, but I do think that if you enter into the subject of war and peace in enemy mode, already obsessed with your tasks, preoccupied with our own survival and committed to do whatever it takes to win, then who cares what the prophet Isaiah said? Today, I'm hoping to let him get under your skin a little bit. I'm hoping to offer you the gift of Isaiah's vision. What if war really doesn't belong in God's world? And to what extent are we willing to be about that? Earlier, I used the phrase war games, and there's actually a movie that came out in 1983. I was corrected from the last service, 1983. And it was a movie uh, about war games, and there's a supercomputer back then, (laughs) and they're envisioning this thing's first solving the game of tic-tac-toe. Steve just tries to figure out the way to win that, but then eventually it shifts with an explosion in the middle. I don't know why, but it shifts towards sorting out the best strategy for war. Take a look at the clip. What? Put X in the center square. No. There's no way you can win that game. I know that. It doesn't. It hasn't learned. Is there any way to make it play itself? Yes, number of players, zero.
Greetings, Professor Falcon. Hello, Joshua. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. What if Isaiah's vision from 700 BC and that movie from 1983 AD, what if they're not entirely wrong? What if you went home today and didn't entirely dismiss the prophet Isaiah as irrelevant? For he saw a vision. In the last days, the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of all the mountains, raised up above all the hills. All the nations shall stream to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate between many peoples. And they, we, shall beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O people of God, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, in our response this morning, the invitation is to embrace the hope of Isaiah's vision and to seek to live into that vision of Christ's kingdom of wholeness and peace. Let's stand and sing together. Salvation. 
Friends, today is Christ the King Sunday. As you go from this place to live as if that's true, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen and amen.